I don't know how anybody learned the Old Testament before PowerPoint. Um, just couldn't get, they couldn't do it. But now we can because our PowerPoint is working. Let's pray together. God, thank you for this last night of our semester in studying the Old Testament. Help us to get through this material with uh, comprehension and some insight, piecing it together in our thoughts so that we might recall it in the future when we deal with these names and these seasons, these epics, these periods of time. Thank you for what's been learned, and I pray we learn even more tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Try to tackle all of the prophets here. We started, of course, with Amos and Hosea, those two prophets to the north. They came early, of course, because it had to be before 721 BC. Then we dealt with the Old Testament foreign prophets. Obadiah went to Edom. Remember Petra there, that impenetrable city that was not impenetrable from God's perspective. Uh, Then we dealt with Jonah, who went to Nineveh, and they all repented when he said that judgment was coming. Nahum went back, you remember, in 650, and uh, wasn't too long after that when uh, Nebuchadnezzar's dad, Nabopolassar, in 612, conquered Nineveh with the help of the Egyptians and Scythians. Then we dealt with Joel, Isaiah, Micah, Zephaniah, and Jeremiah last time, the prophets to the south. We didn't make any distinction in terms of major and minor prophets because we just wanted to talk about those prophets that went to the south. Major and minor was only a distinction in terms of volume of writing, not in importance of message. Uh, We left off poor Habakkuk last time, so we're going to pick him up tonight. And then we're going to deal with these two red bars here, Daniel and Ezekiel. And those are red because they are in the middle of the exile in Babylon. Really not in the middle of it. They're in the front end of it. Daniel's all throughout it. And then we have three post-exilic prophets after the punishment of God, the discipline of God to Judah and the return. Haggai and Zechariah, you can see their numbers are the same, 520. We'll look at those contemporary prophets and then we'll end tonight, Lord willing, with Malachi. Let's talk about Habakkuk. That's where we didn't get to last time. The general data of this book, there's three chapters in 609 is when this comes. And I just happened to mention Nabopolassar, the king of the Babylonians, who really was ramping up the power there. Remember that battle? The battle of Nineveh was in 612, so that had already taken place. The battle of Carchemish, which really was the establishing battle that put Babylon completely in world dominance, was in 605 when his son also came to power, Nebuchadnezzar, who we know. So this is coming right before that. Babylon was ramping up. Anyway, general data. We should talk about the times and probably put that in its proper category. The times is Babylon threat is at hand. Uh, We have a lot that is happening, and it's going to break loose on Judah, and it's already starting. Assyria as a power is collapsing. Remember, they were the world power that was of concern with Nineveh as its capital. And as I said, 612 was a pivotal date for Nineveh. Josiah's reforms, you might remember if you look at your little box up there, you've got Josiah in 640 to 608. He was the good and godly king, but he came two kings after Manasseh. And I said Manasseh was the king that God had said, that's enough. Dad got off the couch, so to speak, and said, "Uh, that's it. Your summer vacation is canceled or whatever you might uh, analogize that to. They're going to go into captivity. But all that reform that took place under Josiah's leadership, which was great and certainly delayed the captivity, uh, all of that was about to dissipate. But you've seen a lot of these things on the borders of Judah. You've seen the world geopolitical situation uh, getting darker, and you see the internal ethic and spirituality of Judah waning at this point. Habakkuk the prophet, we don't know much about him. There's no specific data given. There are a few hints, perhaps, that lead us to think that maybe he was a temple musician, a Levite, uh, and we get that from some statements uh, in the book. For instance, that third chapter which 
which is a prayer. We'll talk a little bit about it in a minute. It says a prayer of Habakkuk the prophet according to the Shiganoth, the Shiganoth. And when you read that in your daily Bible reading, you said, huh? Because your reference Bible or your study Bible didn't probably help you much. There's not much we can say about that word other than we assume it is a musical term because we find it over there in Psalm 7. Yeah, in the title, of course, that title above, the superscription above the first verse says a shiganon of David. Uh, that's the same root, of course. It may be an Akkadian root, by the way. And if it's an Akkadian root, which I'm not sure matches Psalm 7, then that word, uh, the closest root to that in Akkadian is a lament. But the Hebrew, the closest Hebrew root to that would be the, the, the verb to wander. So it could be a musical term. And of course, if you just review the Latin musical terms in modern music, they have these analogous reference points. And so maybe it was a wandering musical term of designation, giving some kind of insight to the musicians. But we're not sure. But it's, it's a musical, it is a musical notation of some kind. And of course, as it ends there, the end of the book of Habakkuk, and you might have tried to quote that last verse, and it's a great last verse to the book, but then you get that last phrase at the bottom of the whole book to the choir master with stringed instruments. So you go, well, that's weird. It's a great verse. It has nothing to do with choirs or stringed instruments, and yet that's how it ends, and that's how that third chapter is framed. So those are some clues, at least, that make us think maybe he is a Levite during this period and close to the temple and concerned about these things, and all that seems to fit, and those musical terms are unique for the prophets, and so we think uh, maybe that's the case, but we're just guessing. We know he's frustrated, though. We can speak of the prophet being very involved in this particular prophecy. Some prophets, as we've seen, get on the scene and they just give their oracles. They give their revelations. They take God's message and say, thus saith the Lord, and here's the word of the Lord, and thus declares the Lord, and we have those statements. Now, we had Jonah that we said we only have one word of oracle from him, and that is, a matter of time, your, your city is going to be destroyed, overthrown. Well, this is a bit of a mix of both. We, we get some insight, of course, into what God is saying through the prophet, uh, it's framed in a, a dialogue with God. And so we see that he's, fr- he's frustrated and he's questioning God about a couple of things. And let's look at what those are. Habakkuk chapter 1 verse 2, he starts this prophetic book with, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence. Look, it's, there's violence here and, and you will not save. Now, here is a guy who understands God is a good God, he's a God of peace, he's a God of justice, he's a God of equity and what's right, and here you see all these things taking place in among God's covenant people that that is not what's happening, and he's crying foul and saying it's not right, it's not right. And like the psalmist often say, when things are going bad, godly people go, now God, I know this is your will, like sometimes we pray in God's will, and we know it's God's will, we say, how long are you going to take to get active here and do what we're asking you to do, because I know it's what you want as well. So he's frustrated, but what does he have in mind? I think what he has in mind as we move to the message here uh, is Judah, first of all. We'll look at that. But first, let's give it a name just to kind of educate us on this if we don't know this word, a theodicy. A theodicy in dialogue is really the message of the book. A theodicy is a compound word. The word theodicy is a compound word. Theos, you know, from theology and lots of other compounds, the Greek word for God. And we call this in theology, a theodicy comes from the Greek word dike, which is the the word for justice or right. And when we label something in a library or a section of paper, 
papers or dissertations under the title theodicy. We're saying here are some papers or books or monographs or whatever that are dealing with how do we say God is a good God and yet allows all this bad stuff to happen. It's the number one question you're thinking non-Christians respond to you with when you start talking about God and his requirements in their life to repent and put their trust in God. And often they say, well, if you've got a God that you want me to align myself under, why in the world are all these terrible things happening in the world? And that's the question. How can God allow evil? How can he allow it or how can he coexist with it? Uh, If he's all-knowing and he knows it, well, then there's a problem. Maybe he's not powerful enough. If he's omnipotent, you say he has all power and he's sovereign and, uh, and he knows it, well, then why didn't he do something about it? I guess maybe he's not good. So those three attributes always are pitted against each other in trying to solve the problem of evil in this world. The book before last I wrote was a basically a popular theodicy. That book I wrote called When Life No When Life Takes a Left Turn. That's how I pitched it to the uh, publisher, but he didn't like that title, so we called it Lifelines. When it was all said and done, my title was better. But anyway, that's what it ended up being called, Lifelines for Tough Times. The book is all about trying to explain to people, primarily in the church, certainly thinking there's a window to the world as people might read this book to say, listen, there are bad things, quote unquote, that happen to good people, quote unquote, good people. Of course, when you ask the absolute question. Why do bad things happen to good people? The answer is they don't, uh, with the exception of Christ, because no one's good except for the triune God. But we're talking in relative terms. Why do relatively bad things, and of course there are many bad things, evil things that happen to relatively good people, and that's basically what Habakkuk is concerned about. And he's starting first with the concern about Judah. God, there's bad things happening here. And while we see the dust clouds on the borders of Israel, or Judah in particular, coming on the, on the, on the land, uh, why are you letting this get worse? And it did get worse toward Zedekiah's reign, the end of Judah. And he, he makes that clear, for instance, in chapter 1, verse 4. Now, he speaks now of the people of Israel. He probably has, I mean, he obviously has connection to the center of Israel, Jerusalem, and its leadership. We're theorizing perhaps he's a Levitical temple musician, perhaps, I don't know. But he's saying, why is the law paralyzed? It's not being done. People aren't doing it. He's speaking here of Israel. And justice never goes forth. Things are getting worse. The wicked surround the righteous. I think he's thinking internally here. And and justice goes forth perverted. Things don't happen the way they ought to. It's a lot like Jeremiah's message. Even in the priests and the prophets, the evil is winning. And he's saying, God, how can you let this happen? And sometimes maybe you look at a situation, certainly I as a pastor, in certain situations, say, this is your church. This is where your spirit is supposed to live. Why are these terrible things happening? And uh, why do you allow it? That's the question that's being posed to God. Then it gets worse. It's compounded because God reveals, I'm going to judge these people. They pervert the law. They pervert justice. I'm going to punish them. And of course, he knows and sees it as God reveals it clearly to him that Babylon is going to be the tool of God's judgment. Well, then the question is compounded. How can you use Babylon to judge Judah? Yes, we're in sin. And yes, our people in society are perverting your truth. But how can you allow these idolatrous and heathen, violent, horrific people? I mean, certainly after the battle of Nineveh, and, and Battle of Carchemish, these are people you're going to use before the Battle of Carchemish, but almost. They were just about to take Carchemish. How can you use these Babylonians, this up-and-coming thug nation, to judge us? Look at how he puts it here in verse 13. Uh, he says, you, speaking of God, speaking of his holiness, his goodness, you are of purer eyes than to see evil, and you cannot look on wrong. 
Why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? Because relative terms, Babylon is worse than Judah. How can you let this happen? Now, a lot of people quote the first half of this verse and they think, how can Satan, for instance, in Job 1 come in the presence of the Lord? Because this verse says, you are of purer eyes than to see evil and you cannot look on wrong. Well, the rest of the verse needs to be read. That's true in a theoretical sense. And from Habakkuk's mind, he's thinking, I don't understand how you can do that. And of course, the whole book is about the fact that he's doing it. He is idly looking at traitors and remaining silent, at least for now. His judgment is pending and it's coming. So don't get that thought. And I often have it. Uh, I get that question. Don't have that question. And I often get it. How can God look at sin? Because they can quote Habakkuk 1.13, but they're only quoting the first half of the verse. He does uh, look at sin. He does not approve of sin. And the Bible is very clear about that. But this was the problem. And he's asking this question. Well, the answer comes in part throughout the book. Well, be patient. God does coexist with evil. He does seem passive in in light of evil, but for still the vision awaits the appointed time. Well, the vision was he's going to judge not only Judah, he's going to judge the tool that's being used to judge Judah. He's going to judge Babylon. We've seen this in a lot of the prophets. They talk about the judgment on Israel by the Assyrians. They talk about the judgment of Judah by the Babylonians, and then they start talking about Egypt. They talk about Assyria. They talk about Babylon, and they start saying God's going to judge all the nations. And so he says, it's going to happen. It hastens to the end. It's coming. It's, it, it's going to happen quickly. It, it will not lie. It's not going to sit idly by. If it seems slow, well, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by faith. Now, you've heard that quoted by the Apostle Paul in the book of Romans. Well, he's utilizing as it relates to justification and the call for us to trust Christ. But in this passage, as it's in its original context, it was, you've got to trust God, Habakkuk, that God is going to do what he says. He just won't do it when you're asking him to. And of course, the object is the same, I guess, in a sense, the triune God. I'm trusting God. The concern is different in Habakkuk. The concern is, I I have a hard time thinking you're good or omnipotent or omniscient, knowing all things, having all power or being all good because these things are happening. And he says, wait, I'm going to make it right. And again, if we look broader, as I try to write in my book about this, and look at the broadest possible view, we recognize that that delay is for grace. That delay, much like Jonah coming to Nineveh and saying, well, in yet 40 days, your city's going to be destroyed. Well, that time of waiting, though they deserved it day one, as the days start to head toward judgment, it's all for God to offer grace to people, the grace of repentance and the grace of redemption. And so God waits but it's going to hasten to the end. And much like the New Testament ends with the Lord's going to come quickly and and, and James says he's standing at the door. Well, there's a swift coming of judgment. But when you think in terms of linear time, it's like, well, does that mean it's going to be soon? No, but it's going to happen. When it happens, it's going to happen quickly. It's going to unleash and God's going to be done. Much like the flood in Noah's day, uh, it's going to deluge and it's going to come quickly. So how does this end? Well, in chapter three, Habakkuk is humbled right? He says, for instance, once he learns about God's judgment, particularly on Judah and even on the nations, he says this. Now notice it's almost like the answer he got was more than he bargained for. Oh Lord, I've heard the report of you and your work. The context is his judgment. Oh Lord, do I fear? I'm fearing. That's an indicative statement. I am. 
And then he adds this and some intervening statements there. In wrath, remember mercy. Interesting how he takes the man who's saying, this isn't right. You should judge it. And when God starts to give Habakkuk a sense of that judgment, he says, oh, I I get it. I'm trembling at your greatness and your justice. When you judge and when you're angry, be merciful. Interesting twist in how he learns the message. So anyway, Habakkuk is resolved in this book in chapter three after a history lesson in in talking about God's faithfulness and God's goodness and God's grace. And he he ends this way. Okay, so all of this is going to happen. And remember, we haven't even had Babylon reach its zenith in terms of power, then they're going to come and they're going to destroy this place and burn the temple. It's all going to fall apart. Well, he says, listen, even if that happens, I've got my message now. I've got the lesson. I get it. Much like in the church age, we know it's going to get worse before Christ comes back. But you know what? No matter how bad it gets, I've learned my lesson and the righteous, the just are going to live by faith. We're going to trust them. Though the fig tree shouldn't blossom, the fruit on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, the fields yield no no food, the flock be cut off from the fold. Those are things that were clearly tying to God's hand. And and so it was with the Babylonians. There'll be no herds in the stall, yet will I, here it is, rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. I'm trusting it. That's why Paul could take that one verse and and really expand it to the whole of the message of, of Habakkuk. And it does come down to redemption. Obviously, the focus of Romans is the trust we have in Christ. But he's recognizing. I trust him. I repent with a penitent kind of faith. I recognize his justice. I even cry out for his mercy. And in that trust, I know God will save. All his promises will be fulfilled, which is, by the way, what I'm going to be talking about on Christmas Eve this year. So he says we can take joy, even though we're waiting, even though all those bad things happen. I may even quote that verse on Christmas Eve. Such a great reminder of God's kindness. The history lesson in chapter 3 goes back to the Exodus and Moses and the wandering and all the rest. All right, Habakkuk, that's last week. Pretend we did all that last week. We have a line there. Hey, let's talk about the exilic and post-exilic prophets. All right, let's start. Pretend I just prayed and all right, PowerPoint just popped on the screen. General data. There are 12 chapters in Daniel. Zechariah has 14 chapters. They're shorter chapters, but you see again, the line's getting a little blurry between major and minor prophets is all I'm trying to say. We get this, this idea that that has been somewhat an arbitrary distinction in our minds. As a matter of fact, I should say to you, in the Hebrew Bible, as you take Hebrew in the seminary, you used to have to learn the order of books in the Hebrew Bible, and you get a sense of the arrangement of all the books. All the 39 are there. It's just Daniel's not even placed in the prophets. It's taken out and put in the history books, in part because this, like Jonah, is a lot of interspersed testimonial about Daniel's life. So it's 12 chapters, but it's not not all oracle. Now, it's not all story like Jonah, 99% story, but it is a lot of story, and that's why you know it, because it's a great Sunday school book to teach through, and you learned it as a kid, I hope, and you know a lot of the stories from the book of Daniel, because it's narrative as well as revelation. And by revelation, I mean foretelling and foretelling revelation. All right. His ministry is a long one. You need to understand that. His ministry lasts for 70 plus years, somewhere between 70 and 75 years. Uh, He starts as a teenager when he goes to Babylon, probably around 15 years old. All of that starts in 605. Now, I've already said enough, and of course, you know enough about what's happening to be able to say that's an important date. Transition between Nabopolassar and Nebuchadnezzar, for one, fall the Battle of Carchemish, for two, and there's the third number you should remember, and let me take you to that, the times. Well, a very important number for me to remember is the date of the first deportation. If he goes to Babylon as a mid-teenager in 605, I can go, oh yeah, that's right. Remember this chart from last time? We've got those last three kings. We've got Jehoiakim, Jehoiachin, and Zedekiah. 
and we had the first deportation under Jehoiakim's reign, very short reign of Jehoiachin, second deportation, and the third deportation, which of course is the final destruction of the temple and routing of the whole city, the burning of the city. That's the third deportation. We know that date from the first week of Old Testament, and that's 586 BC. So 605, key date, at least historically, we can think of the Battle of Carchemish. We can think of the transition from Nebuchadnezzar to Nebuchadnezzar. And then we can also say, oh yeah, that's the first deportation of the Israel, of the Judean Israelites to Babylon. And Daniel goes, not just as a prisoner, and we always call him that, and he is a prisoner. But you know the story. He doesn't go in chains. He's not sitting in a dungeon. They, didn't, they weren't going to waste time or space on the, uh, on the Israelites in that regard. God's people were just going to be exiled from their place. They, didn't, they were going to be conscripted in some cases, but you know, living out in the wilderness and in the Mesopotamian area there in, in Babylonia. But what we've got going on here is the brightest and the sharpest. He comes and serves in the king's court because he's much like the tribute of what's brought to Nebuchadnezzar from the treasury of the temple, for instance. So this is, these are the gifts, the human slave gifts to the king. And Daniel is that. He's part tribute. He's part prisoner. He's certainly, obviously, a Jewish exile. And he's taken in that first deportation. We've got three deportations, just like we have three returns, you remember, as we studied Ezra and Nehemiah. He ministers through two foreign kingdoms. And it's good for you to get this sorted out in your mind. And I try to do this visually because it helps me when I do it visually. So maybe this will help. Uh, of course, you know, Nebuchadnezzar is associated with Babylon. But the next kingdom is Medo-Persia, uh, often just called the Persians. But the Medes were a part of that in, in very significant ways. So the Medo- Medo-Persian Empire. Well, that transition takes place during his ministry, his prophetic ministry. Nebuchadnezzar, you know. And when you think of Nebuchadnezzar, he was not the last king of Babylon. But the stories that you remember from the beginning of the book were placed right there in Nebuchadnezzar's reign. Remember the king's food? He wasn't going to defile himself with the king's food. Let us eat vegetables and water only. The statue of the three Hebrew friends of Daniel, known as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Those were the Babylonian names. That all takes place under Nebuchadnezzar's reign. There are three succeeding short-lived kings, weak kings after Nebuchadnezzar. And then you have a very well-known king, Nabonidus, the uh, leader of Babylonia uh, and Babylon, the Babylonian kingdom. Nabonidus now is the last king of Babylon. The last king, you could look in any ancient curricula of, of world history going back. I mean, you study all of this. Nabonidus, Nabonidus. And you're right. Nabonidus is the last king of Babylon. And yet, if you know your book of Daniel well, you're going, well, I got a problem there. Cyrus is the first king of the Medo-Persian Empire. Then after that, you get some more familiar names that we know. Cambyses, we don't know much of from the biblical story, other than that the building of the temple stopped during Cambyses' reign. But we know Darius I. We know Xerxes, also known as Ahasuerus. We studied Esther. And we know Artaxerxes plays a prominent role in biblical history. So we know those Persian kings, those Medo-Persian kings. But when we study the book of Daniel, we're looking for this guy. Wells, where's Belshazzar? Where's Belshazzar? Now, for a long time, people wrote off the book of Daniel, primarily... And I said, look for the motive when people start questioning the dates on these books. The primary motivation is an anti-supernatural bias against Daniel, who's giving all these very specific prophecies about the period between the Testaments, uh, very specific prophecies that we have. And uh, I taught on... Hanukkah, which we're in the middle of right now, in a couple of different messages, but one I think was at Christmas Eve about all the specific things in Daniel that came true under the uh, Maccabean revolt uh, against Antiochus, Epiphanes, Antiochus IV, Antiochus Epiphanes. So 
all of those things, they say, well, it couldn't possibly be written here in this period of the exile. I mean, there's no way it can be. These things can't start in 605 and go for 70 years and have these prophecies because this is hundreds of years later. Well, then they start looking for all the other reasons to support that theory. They start looking at loan words and the fact that half of it is in Aramaic. Well, we've already seen some Aramaic in the Old Testament, but this is the book that has about half of the content is in Aramaic. It's done for stylistic reasons. But they've got all, they build the case that this is a late book and it's just passed off as an early book and all this historical information is wrong. And one of the things they pointed to was there's no Belshazzar until they found, not too long ago, in relative recent history, they found the Chronicles of Nabonidus. So they uncovered and they translated, and guess what we found? Belshazzar. Who's Belshazzar? He's Nabonidus' son. Well, he's not the king. Oh, but he served as the king. What we learned from the Chronicles of Nabonidus, of the Babylonian kings, is that he, like a lot of these kings, got into all these esoteric things when he had peace, and he went out and tried to find himself spiritually and went away to a place, uh, Tima. Tima was the name of this place. Uh, and he goes and he finds a, a place to seek his gods and learn his, you know, find his belly button or whatever. He, go, he goes to try and takes his entourage out into the desert. Well, guess who he puts in charge of the kingdom? His son, Belshazzar. And Belshazzar there serves at the very end when the whole thing is overthrown and Cyrus comes to power. So Belshazzar, which you know the story, the right handwriting on the wall, Belshazzar story, completely again, as you often see as you study modern archaeology, confirming the story of the Bible. But that was a hole in our secular history. We didn't know about Belshazzar. We didn't know where he came from. We thought it was a made-up word or, or it's some kind of mythical uh, personage. But that's all been, I mean, you can go to Wikipedia and you can find it all laid out now because the world, skeptical world, finally ready to recognize the Bible now. They won't recognize it as a source of history, which of course is what it is, until of course they can corroborate it elsewhere. Well, there is a guy that shows up right out of the gate called Darius the Mede. Now you know Darius the First, who comes in that series of, of Persian kings that we saw on the, on the last page. But the question of who is Darius the Mede? If you go to your study Bibles, you start looking through the notes, and they come up with all kinds of theories who Darius the Mede is. We're not sure. We don't know. But it's just like Belshazzar. I mean, we'll know one day for sure in, you know, when we get to the kingdom, but th- he's clearly a, a person that they are recognizing in the pages of, of Daniel is a legitimate person. It's not that they don't know Cyrus. As a matter of fact, the, the uh, reference in 6 verse 28, it makes it very clear. I think I even cited that. So Daniel prospered. I'm quoting Daniel 6 28. He prospered during the reign of Darius, which he just named earlier, Darius the Mede, and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Two things make this so historically accurate. If you're going to say Darius in any ancient context, it would be good to clarify who we're talking about. Darius that came to power later, Darius I, was called Darius the Great. This guy's not Darius the Great. He's not, that's, there's no anachronism here. There's no chronological out of order. He's a guy that's recognized there, reigning and having authority during the period of Cyrus's leadership. Some assume from Nabonidus' chronicles that he's a general, and they have a name that's somewhat similar. They say maybe it's a connection to him. They're not sure. So we don't know. We don't have the historical information other than the historical information right in front of us. What do we know about Darius the Mede? He's the guy in the lion's den story. Remember that? So that secularists are going to put their fist on their chin and go, oh, it's just a bunch of nonsense. Well, they said that about Belshazzar as well, but he's legit. This is all legit. And he's the key player there, of course, in the story of the lion's den, talking about the law of the Medes and the Persians. And of course, he was a Mede. Cyrus was the Persian. It all fits beautifully. Anyway, I just give you that in case you read some nasty information against the book of Daniel. And we could go on to justify it, but I don't have time. 
the prophet. What do we know? He's a godly man. Well, we know that from the story. But even in Ezekiel's day, and this is a contemporary, Ezekiel 14, 14, mentions him twice in this kind of context. Speaking of the fact that the nation's going to be destroyed, the city's going to be destroyed, Jerusalem's going to be... And here's what he says, Ezekiel. Even if these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job were in it. Well, we know Job is way back, a patriarchal story, probably written, we saw, in poetic form during the middle monarchy of Israel during Solomon's time. Noah, of course, we know from the book of Genesis. What do we know about Job and Noah? They're both depicted in Scripture as godly men, blameless in their day. Well, he throws Daniel in there. It's easy for us to hail dead people. And I often say the most godly people you know, my pastor used to say this, are uh, either dead or live at least 100 miles away from you. To have Ezekiel, a contemporary of Daniel, throw him in between Noah and Job to say even if they were in the city, they would deliver just their own lives with their righteousness, declares the Lord, but they're not going to save the city. I'm just going to deal with that city and, and destroy it. The point is here, huge reputation for godliness. And of course, powerful guy as well in the king's court, not just in Babylon, but in the Medo-Persian Empire. Now, you want to know about the prophet, I would direct you maybe to our Compass Bible Church sermons page, because if you're into focal point, you listen to some of my stuff there. There's a set of sermons that don't seem to ever make it over to focal point that are done at special things that we do here. And one of them is revival. Now, I know it's really geared toward teenagers, So, but there is some decent information. In this first one, I think it's listed first, because I just did a screen grab today on this, from 2017, last summer's revival called Fearless Faith. And there's five messages in there, and some of them are dealing with the godliness of Daniel. The first couple right out of the gate dealing with it. The second one in particular is that relates to the king's food. And then we deal with uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, but a lot of information there that may be helpful. I don't know if it's going to be helpful. And it's only video. I don't know I mean, I could probably pull the, the audio off. But anyway, it's there. You won't find it on focal point. At least I couldn't find it on focal point. We couldn't find it. The message. What's his message? Well, there's a future and a hope for Israel. This sounds familiar. A lot of the prophets are saying this. I know it's really bad right now, especially from a guy who's the mouthpiece of God, who has been taken as a prisoner, who's tribute, who's a slave of the Babylonians. Hey, there's a future and a hope. God's going to bring it for God's people. And a big, big part of this is God is God. Have you noticed how some of the most memorable parts of Daniel are when Nebuchadnezzar, think about this, the reigning guy in all the ancient world is saying, hey, you know what? God is the Lord. He's in charge. He's sovereign. He does whatever he wants to with the powers of earth. He's hail. I mean, that's a giant, giant message in the book of Daniel. But even the pagan kings can recognize when God wants to prove it. Now, how does he do it throughout the book? He does it through predictive prophecy. Even in Nebuchadnezzar's life, Nebuchadnezzar goes out and becomes a, a man beast grazing out in the back of the palace yard because it was predicted. And he knew that. When he came to his senses, he gave his greatest statement about God, even though he did it earlier with the did other earlier praises of God when Daniel interpreted his dream about the, the statue and all of that. But when he comes to his senses after that, downfall that God brought upon him, it was all based on predictive prophecy that he goes, God is God. Now, there's a lot of predictive prophecy in, in the book. And one of the sessions, if you do click on that revival page, if you go down there, which again, it's all geared toward teenagers, so don't, re, don't get insulted that I'm speaking down to you intelligent adult people. Okay, that got no response from me, but I, I don't want you to be offended. Session four, I'm dealing with predictive prophecy. And I deal with some of the predictive prophecy in Daniel. The one I mentioned in particular about Antiochus, Epiphanes, and a few others. You'll get all that in that fourth message, fourth session. I called it God Said, knowing, knowing why this is the true and living God. 
And that's really a big, big part of the message. Now, Jeremiah had said the exile is going to last 70 years. The prophetic word of Jeremiah is 70 years. Well, Daniel says, well, that's true. And he's wondering about that. He's praying about that. The angel comes and reveals another thing. Well, ultimate restoration. To finish everything God's going to do with his people, it's going to take 70 sets of seven. And it's the 70 weeks prophecy. If you go to focal point, this one is on focal point. You want to learn about that, which takes about an hour and a half to explain. That part six, sorting out the end times. It's called a study of Daniel's 70 week prophecy. That may be helpful for you, or it may just be confusing, but there it'll be for you. And I'll recommend a book, I think, in that lecture that can sort it out in propositional words in black and white on a little book. So that might be good. All right. I know there's tons we could say about Daniel, but did I mention we have no time? So we're going to Ezekiel. Ezekiel, general data. We'll talk about a major prophet. I know Isaiah had 66 chapters, but here we are at 48 chapters. This is a big book. You sit down and read it. There's a lot of content here. He ministered for 23 years. Now compare that to 70 plus years of Daniel. That's different. Shorter, obviously. Not even half. He began in 593. Now think about your dates now and start to figure out all of this with the time frame. He was taken prisoner And he was not tribute in the king's court. He was just hauled off as part of the exiles in the second deportation. Now, remember the deportations. Jehoiakim, first one, 605, pivotal date. 597 is the date we don't normally remember, but that's the second deportation under King Jehoiachin when he failed to pay taxes and they knuckled down on him. Then, of course, the destruction in 586 under Zedekiah when it was all done. Now, sort these out. This is all, you got to know, to understand the whole prophecy of Ezekiel, you've got to understand how this fits together. And again, I want to do it for you visually. Daniel spanned two kingdoms. Ezekiel did not. Remember our dates, 605, 597, 586. Those are the three dates of the, of the deportations. Now, Judah, of course, comes to an end there, 586. I don't come to an end. They go into exile, but they cease to exist for 70 years in Jerusalem. The last king, you know, King Zedekiah. King Zedekiah came to power after that second deportation when Jehoiachin did what he did and ended up getting the Babylonians mad again. So we started a new king and his reign, you could remember, is between the second deportation and the third deportation. The world power, of course, is Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar, as I said, came to power after his dad, Nabopolassar, handed off the reins in uh, 605 B.C. He served until 562. Then I said there were those three intervening weak kings and then we had um, our, our final Nabonidus, the the strong Babylonian king and the kingdom ended. Now, his ministry started right here. I shouldn't say that. The star is he got deported right there in the second deportation. His ministry and prophecies did not start then. Here is his time frame. His first oracle comes in 593 and ends in 570. His messages end in 570, the message of hope. That's his, his period here. Now, what's really important for you to see Not that he just ministers all in Babylon's reign, which I said is important to know the distinction between Daniel and Ezekiel. Daniel serves in the king's court and supersedes two kingdoms. Ezekiel doesn't. Okay, I got that. I didn't need a chart for that. But what you need to see is right in the middle of his ministry, the south falls completely. It's already bad. He's a prisoner taken into Mesopotamia, into Babylonia. He's taken into the region. And yet, in the middle, it all completely goes away. The temple's burned and routed, and we get the last deportation, and everything's completely dust. If there was any hope for for Judah, it ended in the middle of Ezekiel's prophecies, which basically splits the book in half. And it's very helpful for you to know that, because in the book, well, let's talk about the prophet first, sorry. He's presented to us as a priest. Now, we've said that. There's, if you're going to be a king in the line of David, you're going to be from Judah. If you're going to be a priest, you've got to be from Levi's tribe. But if you're going to be a prophet, you can come from any tribe. 
You could be from Judah. You could be from Levi. You could be an active priest. And according to this book, he was a priest. We've already seen that. The word of the Lord came to Ezekiel with other prophets. Now we've got another one, Ezekiel the priest, son of Buzi in the land of the Chaldeans by the Kibar Canal. We don't know anything else really about him. There's no other biographical information except for the fact that one of the things God does just at that pivot point in the middle of the book when Judah goes down is he tells Ezekiel, your wife's going to die. So we know he's married. In the second half of the book, he's a widower. His wife had died. And the interesting thing, if you remember the book from our DBR, is that he's told your wife's going to die, which you know is the prophecy he gets about his domestic life. And I'm going to command you not to mourn for her, not to grieve. Don't be broken up in front of people. Suck it up and go out there. And then they're going to ask you, what's with you? Your wife died and you're not sad. And that would become a living illustration to the people. Well, Judah just got destroyed by the Babylonians. Aren't you upset about that? And the point is, it's exactly what needed to happen. Now, you'd never feel that way about your wife, but you feel that, well, I guess if your marriage is really bad, but you wouldn't feel that way about your wife normally in a good marriage. And yet here's Jeremiah weeping and weeping and writing lamentations. And he's like, no, well, it's the way it's supposed to be. I mean, it was a powerful illustration to the people. And they got it because God had said, I'm just doing what I'm supposed to do here. And everyone should recognize that. All right. The message. But I should mention the Kibar River. We don't know where the, oh, the Kibar Canal, Kibar River. We don't know where that is. It's either down south, some archaeologists suggest, down by where Abraham left from Ur of the Chaldeans at the tip of the Tigris and Euphrates where they come together, or it's somewhere up north, which doesn't really help us, I suppose. I don't even know why I brought that up. Other than the fact he's not in the city of Babylon. He's not in the headquarters. That's where Daniel is. Now, he's floating all around. All right, the message. Well, let's start with a few interesting things. The depiction of the heavenly beings, the four living creatures they're called. Now, we just read in the DBR yesterday and today, wasn't today chapter five? So long ago this morning. Um, We encountered the four living creatures, did we not? And you go, oh, that's the four living creatures. I learned about the four living creatures when I read through Ezekiel. Well, I guess you did. There's a connection in that they're called the four living creatures, but they're different. There's several differences between them, although you should compare them. Uh, you've still got these four living creatures. They've got the face like a lion, calf, man, and eagle. And yet in Ezekiel, they've got four faces and instead of these four distinctive depictions. In Ezekiel, they have four wings. Revelation, they have six wings. In Ezekiel, they have eyes pictured as in the wheels associated with the living creatures. In Revelation, the creatures have eyes round about themselves and within. There are distinctions. And if you want to look for a sixth wing, six-winged angelic being, your mind, I think, would go to, if you know your Bible, Isaiah 6, the, the seraphim. Well, these seem to be cherubim, described that way in Revelation and Ezekiel, four living creatures, some special class, and yet the seraphim have got an extra set of wings in the depiction of them. So this could be the distinction between the two. And there are enough distinctions to go, well, there's some similarities and some differences. But once you get those scenes, either in Ezekiel or in Revelation, you start to realize there's a lot of bizarre stuff there we don't even get. You can talk about crystal and emeralds and rainbows and weird stuff, but when you start talking about the seven spirits of God, for instance, remember reading that? And I'm going to go, what's that? They're going to call in the shows. They're going to ask the questions. They're going to email. And we're going to go, I don't know. And we're going to come up with things that sound like there's an answer, but we don't know the answers to some of these things. We don't even know about the wheels. Other than the fact that it seems like God is enthroned on a chariot. I mean, that's the picture, the chariot, which would give them a sense of God's mobility. If God's presence is going to be among his people and Ichabod took place, the the glory departed much like it did in, in Eli's day and Samuel's day. And we no longer have God and his presence there. And now Babylon has destroyed the temple. Here's 
Isaiah's picture of consolation to the people, God is a mobile God. His presence and activity, is, it can come over here. Just like we learned the message, pray for the welfare of the Babylonian cities you're living in because its welfare is your welfare. So listen, you can be a godly person. Individuals can be blessed, which by the way is one of the themes of Ezekiel, is it not? Remember the poem or the saying, the proverb they keep bringing up about the fathers eat sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge? Smile at me if you remember that phrase. And what was the point? Well, I've been giving you this the whole, the whole series. Manasseh did something so bad that they're going to suffer that there's nothing Josiah can do except somehow postpone it. Well, that's not fair. Our fathers were idolaters and it doesn't matter what we do? Well, that was an excuse. And God got mad at that because in reality, it does matter what you do. And God's going to deal with you as an individual. And every man's going to die for his own sins. You were using that often as they were for an excuse of saying, well, I guess that's just the way it is. And God's mad at us. And they became the same kind of rank idolaters as their forefathers, most of them. But the point is, uh, stop thinking that way. Stop, Stop acting that way. Yes, I treat Israel as a national entity, but I treat individuals as specific individuals. And everyone's going to stand before God and be accounted for individually. Another thing that you can read in Ezekiel so powerful in terms of conviction is the Judah's corruption is aided by its spiritual leaders, much like we saw in Jeremiah when he keeps railing on the fact that it's the priests that are so corrupted and the prophets are are for sale. It's the same kind of theme here. You've got a lot of corruption among the priestly class and the prophetic class. And then a big section in the middle of this after the fall of Judah, and I guess I should have made this clear. I thought I was going to write it down, but the first half of this book, which is the whole point of that chart, when Judah is still a nation and they're not all completely destroyed, a lot of the book is directed toward them. The point of the prophecies are, Judah, you need to repent, even though you're going to say, well, the fathers eat sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. We're going to be destroyed anyway. We see the the dark cloud hanging over us. We know we're going to be destroyed. All the prophets say we're going to be destroyed. Jeremiah is saying, if the prophets tell you peace, peace, there is no peace. And you don't believe them. Don't believe the lying prophets. So what does it matter? And he keeps talking about them repentance. Well, then the fall of of Jerusalem takes place by the Babylonians, by Nebuchadnezzar, and now he starts talking about the nation. We see that pattern often. Sometimes we see it as a prelude to God's, the statements of God's judgment on Judah. If he judges the nations, he's going to judge you. If you can shake your head about God being just and ju- judging Egypt, well, then you ought to be recognizing that you should apply that same standard to your life. Now it reverses. You've just been punished. You see that. Now you've got to think about the fact, much like Habakkuk, God's going to judge them. Every individual person and every individual nation is going to be held responsible for their own sins, even though, like Habakkuk learned, you've got to be patient. Wait for it. It's coming. Don't lose hope in God's justice. And then, some of the most interesting things in the book, as it ends, the literal restoration of Israel, the hope of a literal restoration. NNS, north and south, the temple, These themes come into full view here in the end of this book. One of the most powerful, clear statements of restoration. And you know the story, I assume. The the dry bones, right? Dry bones, dry bones. Them, Them dry bones. You know the story. You know the song. What an interesting prophecy about them in the middle of this, having it all been destroyed, all the nations are going to be judged. Now I'm left with just nothing but sadness. And he starts talking about, you see all the the debris of, of Israel? going to come back to life, go preach to those bones and they'll come to life. So many great old depictions of this. Here's a mosaic of the dry bones and even others. I had a bunch that I wanted to show you, but have no time, but he preaches and the nation comes back. And then of course you remember the next chapter is the two sticks. One you're going to jot. We referenced this last time. It's going to say Ephraim and one's going to say Judah. And those two sticks are going to come together and make one stick. 
that picture of restoration. Now, again, I keep asking, as I said last week, when has that happened? It hasn't happened. Matter of fact, as this picture shows, which comes from a Jewish website, well, there's got to be a temple built. Well, remember the Temple of Solomon was so much better than the temple that was rebuilt, the second temple that was rebuilt under Ezra. They they recognized that. And we looked at all the parts of it. Well, they're going to have all the same parts. It's just a lot smaller. Now, we compared it to the tabernacle, and here's a football field. Solomon's temple was about half that size. And we said, okay, that's great. Herod comes along with all his money to ingratiate himself to the Jews in the first century B.C. and 2019 B.C., first century B.C., and makes it a lot bigger, expands it. And so we compared that football field. Remember this back from when we studied Kings and Chronicles? Tabernacle, Solomon's temple, Herod's temple. We go, wow, that's huge. Here here they are with a temple that's smaller than Solomon's temple, probably around the size of the court of the tabernacle. So picture that little brown box or whatever color that is, and you've got that being what they're envisioning is going to be rebuilt, or at least that, if you put your mind forward, is what is going to be rebuilt. It's not on the horizon yet. That was an anachronistic um, description. But that's what will be. But here's what's promised. Ezekiel comes and says, here's what it's going to be. And remember, we read this not long ago with Ezekiel. Man, it was chapter after chapter after chapter of all the stuff the temple was going to be. And if you go through it carefully, there's all these weird structures, and it's bigger, and it's huge, and here comes this temple. So the hope of literal restoration is the remains of this dead nation are going to reassemble. That's why if you look up Ezekiel's dry bone prophecy, you're going to find all these zealous Jewish Zionists that are going to be quoting that and putting it on their websites because that's what they saw taking place in in the 1940s and 50s is the reassembling of those bones. And then the picture of the temple. They want that temple back. And Ezekiel's all described what it's supposed to be and all of its dimensions. And Judah and Ephraim, the north and the south, all going to be reunited. Great promises of literal restoration of the people, which, by the way, has yet to happen. It didn't happen in Ezra and Nehemiah's day. And then we quote this often because we've got the foretaste of it now, and that was the forecast of New Testament regeneration. Twice in the book, we get this forecast of New Testament regeneration. It sounds a lot like Jeremiah 31, the new covenant promise. And the references to it that we often quote come from one of the passages, Ezekiel 36, when he says, I'll give you a new heart, new spirit, small s, new person inside I'll put within you. I'll remove the heart of stone and give you a heart of of, of flesh. And then I'll put my spirit, capital S, within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to, to obey my rules. That picture is the picture that should come clearly into mind when you read the Upper Room Discourse in John, when John is sitting there speaking of the fact that there's a comforter that's going to come, and it's going to come, and he's going to change his relationship with you. I'll quote it for you, John 14, 16. I will ask the Father, he will give to you another, the, the parakletos, the helper, the comforter. He'll be with you forever, even the spirit of truth, the Old Testament spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, he dwells with you, but he'll be in you. The prepositions change, which is a reference to Ezekiel, that great picture of having the Spirit now put within me. That's a picture that we saw in the Old Testament in certain situations described that way, but there was a major shift of God's people having this indwelling Spirit. And we often quote that. Now it comes, of course, in its fullest fruition when the people of Israel are filled with His Spirit and north and south in Jerusalem with a new temple, all regenerate the the Spirit of God living in them and drawing them to keep the rules because they felt somewhat hopeless. We're always sinning, always going astray, going to fix the problem. All right, Haggai, general data, two chapters. That means we can do it quickly. 520 B.C., think in your mind now about that time frame, 520 B.C. We know some things about that. We'll get to that. The times. Well, clearly, 520 is after the Babylonian exile. 
Matter of fact, if I think through the returns, I've talked about the deportation several times tonight, at least twice. Let's think about the returns now. Less than 20 years after the first return of the exiles, if I'm going to put that date in my mind, now think this through. Remember this chart? Zerubbabel led the first return, and I said could have been its own book. It's the first half of a book in the Bible. Ezra leads the second. The third is by Nehemiah. Now you know we're talking about Ezra and Nehemiah. 538, 458, 444. Those are our, four, our three dates of the returns. The texts, first half of Ezra, second half of Ezra, the book of Nehemiah. The Persian king was Cyrus, who gave the decree to go back, as we'll see in a minute. And then the king in both other returns is Artaxerxes. We have a decree to rebuild the temple. We have a decree to provide finances. We have a decree to rebuild the walls. Now, I'll give you a little more detail on this with a chart you're familiar with. This is from the study we did of these Persian kings. Follow this now. This is after the Babylonian exile. You got Cyrus. You got Cambyses. Remember, no restoration during that time. Darius, Xerxes, also known as Ahasuerus from Esther, and Artaxerxes. Okay? And there's all our decades from the 530s to the 450s. What happens? Temple begins to be rebuilt. We get that in Ezra. Temple project stops. We got the temple project resuming. You've got the temple being completed. Thanks to Darius, by the way, that it resumes. Not Darius the Mede, Darius the First, Darius the Great. 515, the temple's completed. You got all that opposition in Nehemiah that's discussed, and certainly in Ezra even, the opposition during Xerxes' reign. Then you got the opposition during Artaxerxes' reign. So that was the context historically, and to say, what's going on here with Haggai and Zechariah as well? Well, that's taking place way up here. So what's happening? Okay, we're just getting back to it. We're just moving back, just getting all this settled, trying to rebuild the temple. This is what's going on. Even Ezra, in the first half of the book, under Zerubbabel's leadership, we get this statement in this book, Ezra 5.1. Now, the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, just to make it clear, it's a very common name, the son of Idu, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem. So Ezra is our historical time frame. I said our foundational books take us all the way to Ezra and Nehemiah. During the first of the post-exilic historical books, now we have Haggai and Zechariah, and they're prophesying, contemporary with Ezra, contemporary with Zerubbabel. Got that? unsorting these names and these dates and so helpful, I think, if you were to put that together. All right, the prophet, what do we know about him? Nothing, really, to speak of. All we know is the contemporary of Zechariah. We don't have any biographical information about poor Haggai. He's not poor. He's a powerful preacher. What's his message? Get back to work on temple construction. Things have slowed down. You need to get it back. You need to put your spiritual priorities first. And if you don't, which you haven't, God is going to correct you, and he'll correct you by very practical means. And as, first, as Hebrews 12 says, it'll always be painful means. God uses painful means to get you back on track. It's called discipline. You may be undergoing some of it now. Who knows? God works in these ways. Now, how does it play out in Haggai? Well, they had to rebuild the temple. It should be the most important building in the, the city. It's the center of worship. It's an important place. It should be the most important aspect of your life. Well, you weren't giving it the instruction. You just got back. You were worried about your own houses. We got a lot to do to settle, resettle the land here in Judah. And Haggai starts right out of the gate saying, is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house, the temple, lies in ruins? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Now he's saying, there's been some very practical means by which God's trying to get your attention and redirect your priorities. You've sown much. You've harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourself, but no one's warm. 
He who earns wages does so to put them in a bag with holes in it. Oh, that's a great, vivid picture. Your finances aren't working out. Even the stuff you eat doesn't satisfy you. The stuff you buy doesn't satisfy you. General discontent, malaise, you're not happy. What's going on? Well, he kept, keeps talking. Well, consider your ways. Lord says this, go up to the hills, bring wood in, and build the house that I may take pleasure in it, and I may be glorified, says the Lord. That's what I'm sending you back to do. First things first, just like I don't want to build the walls until Nehemiah comes because I'm worried about the temple structure. Even though you could justify and rationalize, we might as well build the walls before we build the temple. It would make sense. Let's protect this thing that Nebuchadnezzar had to breach the walls to destroy. No, put the spiritual things first. That's always trust. It's like the first fruits. You give it to God and you trust him. And so it was. You go out there, don't build the walls, don't finish cherrying out your houses. Yeah, you need a roof, I understand. Get a place to live, reestablish your house in your ancient tribal land, but get to work on this temple. You look for much, and behold, it came to little, getting back to that reprise of the fact that you're discontented. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because my house that lies in ruins while each of you busies himself with his own house. Very practical message. You're back in the land. It's time to rebuild the temple. You guys have gotten lazy. You've gotten apathetic. Get back to work. That's, in essence, what we're dealing with in the book of Haggai. For the sake of time, that'll do. Zechariah, general data, 14 chapters. As I said, this is a long book. 520, same time frame. One thing I will mention about the book in terms of general data, it has apocalyptic features. Apocalypse. If I said apocalypse, what would you think of? What is, how does Hollywood use the word? Apocalypse means what? The end of the world's blowing up. The world's on fire. Well, okay, where do they get that word from? Well, it came from all the sermons, all the Bible teaching, which came from the Bible. And that was, whenever we're going to talk about the end of the world, I guess we'll go to the book of Revelation, which the old title for it was The Apocalypse. Sometimes it's called the Apocalypse of John because John wrote it, but it's really, right in the first chapter, the Apocalypse of Jesus Christ. Now, that can be understood in two different ways, and both of them are true. Let's understand the word. Apocalypsis in Greek is to uncover, to expose. Two things are happening in the book of Revelation. Information is being uncovered and exposed about Jesus Christ, specifically the uncovering and exposure of Jesus Christ to the world his return. And his return is going to be characterized by the world being on fire, the great tribulation. All of that gets back to someone can make a reference in a movie, movie title. Someone can make a reference in a, in a skit, in a sketch, in a joke. Apocalypse, everyone knows what we're talking about, the end of the world. It's got a, quite a few chains to get to where it came from, the apocalypse. Now I'm using it in a completely different way or not a completely different way, but what do I mean by that? When we study scripture, we start speaking of scripture, we become, as teachers of the Bible, we have to be, we, learned, we have to learn at least to have acquaintance with, if not master, the genres of the Bible. There are different categories. We've got proverbial, we've got wisdom literature, we've got parabolic literature, we've got didactic literature, we've got epistolatory stuff, we've got all these different categories. Well, one of the categories is apocalyptic literature. And when we talk about apocalyptic literature, you're gonna talk about books like Joel, you're talking about books like Daniel, Ezekiel, and of course, Revelation. Well, that's where we got it from. The last book of the Bible is so filled with what we now know of as apocalyptic literature. Well, what do we mean by that? Well, it means to uncover, and the future was being uncovered in these books with visions. That's the means by which these things were uncovered. But those visions are now explained by the writers, whether it's Daniel, Ezekiel, Joel, or John, the book of Revelation, and all they're doing is describing them. And now what are they describing? It looked like this. Here's the image I saw. Here's the number of things I saw. Here's this thing, and it had this many things on it, and had this much stuff, and this is what it was like. And it becomes very weird literature because it's filled with these symbols. Zechariah, as some people have said, is the revelation of the Old Testament. It's the apocalyptic book 
in terms of its uncovering a lot of future plans, and a lot of current things are uncovered by symbolic means. In other words, visions that that Zechariah has, and now he explains them in the book. And God, through the book, in most cases, defines them, although some of them are hard to define, just like in Revelation. We don't know. Beast comes on the land, puts one foot on the land, he comes out of the water, puts the other foot on the sea, and now, great, do your devotions on that passage. Or worse yet, as I've had to do, preach that passage. We don't have the explanations. You're hunting for a lot of this stuff. Get a little bit of that in Zechariah. A lot of it's explained. With good homework, you can get through the book of Zechariah, though it's very difficult for you to really master every verse and, and chapter of this book, but... It takes a little extra work. It's not like Habakkuk. Habakkuk is theologically hard. Zechariah is literarily hard to untangle. All right. The times, same as Haggai. Don't need to repeat any of that other than to say Zechariah's ministry seems to have started just a few months. Some would say just two months after Haggai starts. They're contemporary. And as we read in Ezra there, they're just referred to. We've got two prophets running around trying to get things right. They're doing it in very different ways with very different not very different, but different messages touching on different ideas. The prophet, what do we know about him? We know he's a priest. He's described as a priest, and it's a very, very, very common biblical name, Zechariah, but probably because of what it means. If it ends with a at the end, then it's referencing one of the references of God, the appellations of God, and that is what? Yahweh, right? When an Old Testament name transliterates from Hebrew into English, if it has a A-H on the end, it's Yahweh. So I know Yahweh is going to be part of this definition. Zechariah, the, the Hebrew root at the beginning that you'd say Zach comes from, is the word to remember. Yahweh remembers. And because so often the leaders of the nation, particularly the priests, were trying to teach everyone, they were the pastors, the shepherds, trying to teach everyone that God remembers, whether it's your sin or your righteousness. And just like I said, wait for it. God is keeping track. God is keeping score. That's a very common name for these Levite women to name their sons. There's over 30 of them in the, in the Bible, or about 30 of them in the Bible. You know some of them, probably. There was a king, of course. Do you see him here on the king list? Zechariah. I made this distinction one of the weeks. He's the king of the north, by the way. 753 to 752. There's a Zechariah. Yahweh remembers. Was one of the kings. Not just the Levites. The kings were named that. Uh, how about Zechariah and Elizabeth? Which, by the way, he was a priest in Luke chapter 1. The parents of John the Baptist. You'll see it in the period of David's life. He had a lot of people around him named Zechariah. One of the Levitical gatekeepers. Uh, one of the musicians in David's reign. Several of the priests through the years. A lot of people named Zechariah, just so you know. So don't get them mixed up. You read Zechariah, you got to think, oh, where, where am I historically? Where am I biblically? Who is this? Is this the prophet? Most of us do that naturally, just knowing where we're at in the Bible. But if you're new to the Bible, sort that one out. The message, what's the message? Well, it's filled with all this apocalyptic description, all this vision. God reveals, apocalypsis, we say in Greek, even though it's Hebrew book. And then Zechariah is explaining what he sees. He's, first of all, depicting and referencing what he sees. Well, what are these eight visions? The beginning of the book is full with these visions. Well, without going through them in detail, which I was thinking, I, I started to do that on the PowerPoint. And I thought, I will not have time. It'll be 8.01 probably when I'm at Zacharias. So don't do that. Good decision, Pastor Mike. But what are these eight visions? Well, some of them are pictures of hope. Some of them are pictures of needed purification, including how the word of God purifies us and how God's spirit purifies us. There are prophecies even among the visions, although beyond the visions, though there are references in the visions to the Messiah, even a reference to Joshua. And again, you've got to know there's more than one Joshua. The Joshua in this book, I mean, Zerubbabel is one of the key players that Zechariah is talking about who comes back. We said it's under the leadership and the governorship of Zerubbabel who's leading the building of the temple. The high priest at the time is Joshua. And Joshua is discussed in this book. At one point, there's a vision of him having a crown placed on his head. <gasps> 
you wouldn't, shouldn't do that, right? Why? Because whenever you saw a king trying to be a priest, they broke out with leprosy or they got, they got rebuked or dropped dead. Well, the same goes for the priests. The priests are priests. They're not kings. Well, there is going to be a priest and a king that's coming. And even in that vision, that apocalyptic vision of Joshua, the high priest, getting that crown, that diadem on his head, picture of the Messiah as it looks in hope to the future. The Messiah will be a priest and king. I wrote that down. Good. But then interesting, after all that great positive stuff, you got this statement about chapter 11, the Messiah is going to be rejected. Well, that's interesting. How is that going to work? Now, again, if you're looking for the rejection of Christ and the gap between first coming and second coming, you can find it. But we don't want to see the bad news. So people overlooked a lot of that. And they were really struggling with the fact that Jesus got rejected and crucified. But you can see references of that in books like this. See it in Isaiah, of course, we camped on that a little bit. And then, of course, the end of the book, with the greatest part of the book, chapter 14, got the Messiah is going to be enthroned, New Jerusalem, river of life flowing from it. It looks a lot like Revelation, chapter 21 and 22, right there at the end in Zechariah 14. God coming back, setting his feet on the Mount of Olives, splitting it in half. Of course, the Lord not going to have a body. The Lord doesn't have a body. That's idolatry. That's blasphemy. Of course, well, the God-man, Jesus Christ, fulfills all those things in Zechariah 14. It's a great passage. Malachi, general data, four chapters. Now, note the date here. 4.30. Oh, that's a lot later. 4.30. Yes, it is. Four chapters, 4.30 B.C. Let's give you the time frame here. The people have been settled in for quite a while. As a matter of fact, figure that out. Do the math. This is like 90 years after Haggai and Zechariah. Wow. That is a long time. Think back 90 years ago. A lot has happened in our culture in 90 years. Now, of course, things are accelerated in our technological day, but that's a long time. So this is a whole different audience now. He's a contemporary with Nehemiah. Ezra? Spiritual concern, get the temple built. Nehemiah, build the walls. You remember this chart. You got Zerubbabel, Ezra, Nehemiah. You got the dates. You got the text. You got Cyrus. You got Artaxerxes. Rebuild the temple. Finance the project. Rebuild the walls. Here is where the last prophet is. He's in that period there of Nehemiah. Nehemiah finished the walls in 444 BC. And what was the date I just gave you? 430. So within however many years that is, math majors. Now, to kind of slide this chart down, give you a couple more things here. You remember the temple was completed in 515, opposition during Xerxes, opposition during Artaxerxes. Well, now let's get Nehemiah's walls rebuilt there, 444. So in the middle of the 440 decade BC, we get the, we get the walls built. Well, now here comes Malachi. We got the temple, we got the walls, people are settled, we're back to life as usual, right? That's how this feels right now. Artaxerxes still ruling, he'll rule until uh, 424 and then some weak leaders, Darius II, Artaxerxes II, Darius III, and they continue. And then they peter out. And then we have the rise of new nations, which we don't have time to talk about. The prophet, what do we know? Not much, other than his name, which once you learn Hebrew, you learn early on, like you, were, you learn the word angelos, angel, as it's transliterated in English, which means messenger. Well, this word comes from the Hebrew equivalent of that, malak, malak. We get the word Malachi, which is the combo, my messenger. This is my messenger. And God says, here's my messenger. An angel, of course, is a different category than a human being. But what are they called? Hebrews 1, they're messengers. They're, they're sent to minister and to give a message. That's what the word angel and Malach mean. And so Malachi, not Malachi. He's not from Italy, Malachi. All right. Which, by the way, if you're in a Hebrew class or you've got a professor in front of you, he won't pronounce it Malachi. They always put that strong emphasis on the last syllable. Call him Malachi. All right. The message. What's his concern? Well, his concern is you guys are getting apathetic. You're spiritually being negligent. Ninety years ago, your forefathers were punished 
by being discontent, by not making any profit in their marketplace. Why? Because they didn't build the temple like they were supposed to. They were building their houses. You guys now are just altogether apathetic. And really the theme of this book, and it's a great book, such a preachable book, you fail to fear God. Everything comes back to that theme, fearing God. It may not be in so many words, although it pops up. The idea of you fearing God was key to this. Seen in what? Well, right out of the gate, lame offerings, both literally and rhetorically. You're bringing this, this terrible, lame, second-rate stuff to the temple. That shows you don't fear God. The pastors or the priests, they're weak. You guys aren't doing what you're supposed to do. You're not working hard at teaching. You're not studying the law. You're not preaching it accurately. You're weak. You're lazy. Another word. I almost put that on there. Weak and lazy pastors. You got marriages. You don't seem to care about the spiritual interest of the one you fall in love with. Just attracted to someone, you just go after You don't care about where they are. And you've got people in your nation now marrying people that have foreign gods as their gods. Unequally yoked marriages. Guys are getting divorced. Fed up. Breaking faith with the wife of your youth and saying, I'm done with this. I don't want to be married to you. It's getting too hard. I don't like you anymore. You're generally arrogant and prideful as a culture. And Malachi needs to be preached in the 21st century in Orange County, does it not? I mean, this is just such a great example of the apathy of so much of what we've seen recurring in generations and and certainly now. Giving, if I showed you the stats on giving, and I don't just mean in our church, but across the board in 21st century evangelicalism, terrible. Matter of fact, the more wealthy a culture is, like ours, we have a very wealthy culture in South Orange County. We're the worst givers in terms of percentage-wise. I can go to, take you to a church in Kentucky, take you to a church in, in Kansas, Per capita, they give far better than most people in Orange County. And how about looking for a good Bible teaching church in Orange County? That can be hard to do. Marriages, how many times do we have to say, oh, I can't even marry you. I mean, the gal you want to marry doesn't even have a testimony. Divorces, rampant. Arrogance, that's the general, general feel of our culture. All right, what's the message? Well, that's the message, but there's a little bit more to it, and it ends on this note. There's a promised messenger to come before the Lord. Look at this, Malachi chapter 3. Before I, behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. Again, all these statements, like in Zechariah 14, I'm coming back to set my feet on the Mount of Olives very literally. Well, God doesn't have feet. No, but Jesus does. The Lord's gonna come. He's gonna present himself in the temple, as the next line says. The Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. How's that gonna work? Is that another cloud coming down? The Ichabod reversed? The, the glory's gonna return? No, this is much different. I'm gonna send a key player to be my forerunner. That's chapter three. Now, this should make some sense to you. Again, if you start looking for the distinction between the first coming and second coming, you'll start to see it. But you've got to be willing to take the bad news of waiting, the bad news of gaps, the bad news even of, you know, maybe this isn't all going to happen at once. Chapter four begins this way. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze. The Lord of hosts, says the Lord of hosts, so that they will leave them neither root nor branch. And it goes on to talk about, which I meant to have on there, someone who's got a, um, got your Bible open? Someone hand me a Bible, please. Got a Bible? Is it an ESV? No. It's not. Give me an ESV. Rejection. ESV. Look at that. Look at this. You're in Malachi. You're following right along. That is awesome. A+. Plus. Verse 2, but you who fear my name, the son of righteousness shall rise with healing in his wing. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. Where's, oh, there, verse 5, thanks, it's there. I was about to say you, rejection. Your Bible doesn't have the right verse in there, but there it is. It's there. I wonder if you were cutting out that verse. Remember the law of my servant Moses and the statutes and the rules and I commanded him at Horeb for all of Israel. Behold, I send to you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Before that comes, here comes Elijah, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come in the land with a decree of utter destruction. A messenger is going to come before the Lord before he comes to his temple. 
Elijah is going to come before, as verse 1 says, that's why I put verse 1 here, before he sets everything ablaze, before the burning like an oven, where the arrogant and evildoers will be stubble. See, this is why John the Baptist was still concerned about whether Jesus was the Messiah, because he's sitting in prison, and the arrogant and the evil are not being destroyed. How is Herod keeping me in prison, and he's not being destroyed? If this is the coming of the Lord, I don't get it. Well, Elijah, as you remember in the passage of the discussions, as Jesus has, they said, was he Elijah? Was John the Baptist Elijah? And he says, well, you, he was if you were willing to accept it. Were they willing to accept it? No, Zechariah said they're going to reject the king. They're going to reject him. This king priest is going to be rejected. And he was rejected. And then he says, and I think I wrote this one down on my notes, Matthew seventeen ten. Will he come? Yes. Here he says, Elijah does come and he will restore all things. Okay, John the Baptist's head had already been cut off. John the Baptist was prophesied to his dad, Zechariah. He's going to come in the spirit and the power of Elijah. So everyone thought, there it is. He comes in the spirit and power of Elijah, the messenger, John the Baptist. And Jesus said, yeah, if you choose to accept it, he's John the Baptist. But they didn't accept it. And they didn't accept him as a nation. But he will come and restore all things. The gap between Malachi 3 and Malachi 4, again, that's the first and second coming of Christ. At least alluded to, you have to admit. John the Baptist was already dead. But Jesus says, Elijah is coming. I think ties him probably because all that discussion about Elijah and coming first came when Peter, James, and John had just seen Elijah and Moses with, with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. Well, then there's two witnesses that come and do amazing work to turn Israel's hearts to the Lord before he comes back when he burns the place up. What is that? The two witnesses. Elijah's going to come. And Elijah's going to come as a forerunner to Christ. The two witnesses there in Revelation, Christ is going to come back, and it'll be this day, not the first day when he comes to his temple. Because, by the way, in 70 AD, if the Jews are still waiting for that, he did not come to his temple. His temple's been destroyed. Oh, he did come to his temple in the first century, but he can't come to his temple now unless it's a rebuilt temple. But the temple that they just built and that they were sitting there worshiping in every week, could he come to that one? Yeah, it was refurbished by Herod, I understand, but it was right the same one, same bones on the inside. That... That's the one the Lord came to with the messenger. John was the messenger in the spirit and power of Elijah. Babylonian Talmud, which is all the rabbis trying to codify all the wisdom of Israel, say this in Yoma 1.1, section 3, verse 11d. When the last prophets died, Haggai, Zechariah, and then 90 years later, Malachi, the Holy Spirit took leave of Israel. Bam, gone. That was their, their mindset. They knew, as we would, in observation, silent years, 400 silent years, we call them. And it was silent. Until Luke chapter 1, verse 11, there appeared to him, who? Zechariah. Interestingly enough, he's called Zechariah, the priest, the country priest, one of 20,000 priests in the first century, bivocational, from the hill country of Judea. It was his turn. His number came up to burn the incense on the altar of incense. He was troubled when he saw this angel. Think about this. From the first time, breaking in time and space. Oh, yeah, we had the Maccabean revolt. We had God doing great things through people. But God's spirit now back on the scene. And the angel of the Lord speaking through this angel. Don't be afraid, Zachariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. And you'll call his name John. All the tie of Malachi comes to bear right there. Through a guy whose namesake was the second to last prophet. And the last promise of the Bible. You got a forerunner coming. And the power and spirit of Elijah. And the first coming of Christ is realized in Luke 1. That is Old Testament survey for 2018. Let me pray for you. Two minutes late. Sorry. Let's pray. God, 
Thank you for our time and our study this semester. May it make a difference in our thinking, our handling of your word, trying to rightly handle your word, understand it, to see it all from its original context all the way to its prophetic fulfillment and even through the first coming to the second. But a lot of this hasn't been done yet and we look forward to the day when it'll be completed. As tough as it'll get, so help us to know if the fig tree doesn't blossom that we're gonna rejoice in the Lord, the God of our salvation. We pray that in Jesus' name, amen.